0: ala Amma We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet. Alrighty. So last few sessions of, of the Course, inshaAllah, salam. And once again, uh please nod or something, let me know you can hear me. So, so we've gone through, uh, in the story of origins, we've gone through the big three uh, parts of the story, which is the announcement, although that was preceded by, by two aspects of our relationship with the world in ayah 29 and 30. And then we had the announcement in Aya 30 to 33. Then we had the, the Sajda in Aya 34 and then 35 to 39. We had the story of the tree as well as concluding remarks from, from Allah Ta'ala. Uh, uh, what I'd also like to look at is something else that is built into the text here. And so, uh, can you nod if you can see this Quran page? Yeah, okay, good. And Okay, so, so once again, we have al-Baqarah. And then scrolling through. So, so we have, once again, I have 30 through 33, as mentioned, and apologize for the repetition, we have the announcement. And then I have 34, we have the event of the, the instruction of the Sajda. And then 35 and 39, 35 through 39, we have the event uh, of, of the tree and Allah's closing remarks. What well, we also have built into this, and we find different passages in the Quran work exactly this way, is we have some of the most fundamental fundamentals of, of Islamic law. So the easiest way to explain this is to go to our trusty whiteboard, which you know how much I've grown to love this. Cannot expect that I like the whiteboard as much as I do. <clears throat> and I think my handwriting's even increasing in quality a little bit. Okay. So, so in terms of the story of origins, part one is the announcement. And then I've just repeated it so many times. All of you are experts on this. We have the event of the prostration, I 34, and then 35 to 39. We have the tree plus closing remarks from Allah. Remarks probably not the best word. Closing instruction. from Allah Ta'ala and so how does this play out as the foundations for some foundational concepts for how Sharia operates so Sharia being Islamic law one of the first principles to appreciate is that Allah knows all And, and so <clears throat> what was taking place, Allah's announcing that he has uh, uh, appointed a khalifa on the earth, and the angels said, are you going to create someone who's going to shed blood? And he says, what? I know what you do not know. And then from there, we have the story of Adam and the names of all things. And then, then Allah Ta'ala says to the, uh, to the angels, did I not tell you that I know what you reveal and what you conceal? So forth and so on. And then we have also the worldly purpose of humans, which is to be the Khalifa uh, in the world. Yeah. And then part of that, <laughs> you think that's a typo? Um, Uh, which type of um? Subhanallah, uh, <laughs> God knows. Allah is that what you're referring to? Yeah, mashallah. I was, yeah, yeah, I was testing. Yeah, yeah. no, no, you yeah, know, thank you for the correction. Okay, and then as part of this, we are also going to have some obligations in the way that the angels were given the obligations to, to prostrate. And relate to the tree, we're going to have prohibitions. And think about the language of prohibitions. Sometimes a better term is limits. Drink whatever you want, just don't drink these things. Eat whatever you want, but don't eat these four things. Good. You know, use whatever words you want, don't say these things. Good. And so we have limitations. You're given the entirety of human behavior to part to indulge in, but stay away from this list of things. Prohibitions or limits. And then the last is matters of redemption and obedience. Okay. Which then leads to consequences and the worst case scenario is that the consequences will be in the next life right but at from one lens this sums up the foundations of the sharia and then this gets built upon and we're not going to do it here but if we were to look at the story in about 30 ayahs of Musa telling his people to slaughter a cow and just to summarize the story he says God says to slaughter a cow they say are you making fun of us and then they start asking for details Right, tell us, you know, what kind of cow, neither too old nor too young. Tell us which cow in terms of color. He says the color that's really beautiful for it. And all the cows seem to us, just tell us, you know, a bit more, and inshallah will follow. And there we also have a l second layer of foundations of the Sharia, which is what Allah Ta'ala gives instructions and they're not arbitrary. And one, a cow that's neither too old nor too young, that Allah ta'ala is steering us towards the middle towards what we might call moderation. And then what else is there as part of the Sharia? A cow that's beautiful to the eyes. And part of the purpose of the Sharia is to beautify the experience of life. Even in terms of levels of obligations, we'll have, you don't need to remember this, we'll have things that are absolutely mandatory and then things that help fulfill those things that are mandatory. And then in obligations to actually beautify life. And then another aspect of Sharia, you know, a cow that's designed to till the soil but it hasn't been used, has no marks and such, uh, that we put everything in its proper place. Good. And so what I'm saying is also built into these ayahs in these passages are secondary sets of instructions. So here on the one hand, we have the story of origins. And then at the same time, we have foundations for Islamic law. And that's how much of this passage, much of the text operates that there will be the overt text and then there is what is inferred from it. And and so from there, what I want to do is to give us a quick rundown of some basics of Islamic law uh, because these are questions that come up very, very frequently. Uh, Someone, if you can, explain to us what is the difference between Sharia and Fiqh? what is sharia and what is fit and, and I forgot how to <coughs> excuse me I forgot how to uh, allow you to speak so so uh, so the divine law is sharia divine law is sharia uh, allow participants to So, so, yeah, uh, all of you are, are, are in the vicinity. Sharia is a whole path where life. Fiqh fiq is how to do what? Uh, human interpretation is fiqh. So fiqh is the act of the interpretation of the Sharia. Okay. So first, in terms of definitions. So Sharia is the path that leads to water. Uh, i.e. relief and what does that mean essentially that the function of sharia is to make life easier (coughs) which is the inverse of how we often imagine it. often we imagine sharia as this burden of rules that we have to follow that seem almost arbitrary but the actual intent is to make life easier. And at the core of that is a combination of what is Sharia in its most simple form? Removal of harm. Plus giving people stability. So if we were to forget, you know, Dean for a moment, and if we talked about uh, the acts of worship and specifically the daily prayers, what are some secular benefits of the daily prayers? The most simple secular benefit is that it's giving you a regular routine throughout the day, every single day. A small amount of physical fitness, uh, a certain amount of of purity, but it's giving you this, this, this routine every single day. So stability, and then often one of the first questions is that all right, if I want to be a better Muslim, what should I do? Uh, you start with far, you start with haram. Depends on the person, but often the default is get rid of harm from from a person's life. Okay, that's the most basic basic aspect. Obviously, Sharia is more, more, more complex than this, and even <clears throat> all this is is essentially. Uh, what is fit? Fiqh? fiqh is the process of understanding and applying. So Hannah's question is, why do we need a routine? Uh, I would suggest think about the, the the opposite. You know, think about the opposite of 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 um, of having no routine, no patterns, and such. Uh, I think. It's, and, and tell me what you think. I think it, it opens the door for a lot of uh, chaos and sloth as opposed to stability. Mm-hmm. But understanding and applying. <clears throat> now, in terms of the history of, of Islam, we have the, the era of the Prophet and the Quran and the Sahaba. Remember, Sunni Islam includes the companions. May Allah be pleased with them. And so well, that predominant period, as we know, is 6, uh, no, uh, 610 to 661. Right. That part we've seen. Don't worry, we're not going to do that whole repeat of empires and such. And then in this phase... What starts developing are the schools of law. I.e. the schools of fiqh. Throughout the history of Islam, there have been as many as 30 schools of fiqh. And so when we speak of the four, those are the four that have survived. So chronologically, it's the Hanafi school, and the maliki school and an offshoot of the maliki school is the Shafi'i school and i'm sure you all know these by name and then a student of all of that is the hanbali school yeah. named after the original people but what are they essentially they're schools of interpretation interpretation of action okay. so <clears throat> so Islamic law is present at the time of the Prophet peace be upon him if I had a question I'd go to him if I'm living among the Sahaba I'd go to them and and so once we get removed from from those generations we have this source material which is the Quran and the Sunnah and the Companions, this is essentially the Sharia. When we are looking through the lens primarily of action, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but primarily Sharia is focused on action. Then, <laughs> what starts forming from there are the schools of theology. So, a couple of terms here. Uh, the most common are Usuluddin and Kalam. And the big ones here in terms of Sunni thought, if we add in terms of, of Shia thought, we would also add the Ja'fari school. So in terms of Sunni schools of theology, the big ones are called the Ash'ari, Maturidi, and sort of a pushback on all of them is the Athari school. Again, we've had numerous schools of theology throughout our history, and then there's one that is always studied as well, the Mu'tazila. So what are we saying here is that in Islamic history, schools of law start forming, and as they are forming, and then the schools of theology start forming. What is, theolo- what is theology looking at? So these are schools of interpretation as well, focused on reality. Let's make it easier how reality operates. I'll talk about the khawaj in a bit okay uh, so so abu hassan's question is what do i mean uh, interpret reality versus action the sharia is focused on trying to figure out what do i need to do and how do i do it okay the schools of theology are saying how does reality work how does free will and predestination work together how does allah ta'ala uh work with the angels to make things happen in the world most of it is in the realm of the unseen and then uh, also at the time we start seeing the compilation of authenticated hadith Now keep in mind, the Hadith collection process as well as the theology process as well as Islamic law, meaning the formation of the schools, it starts really coming into place in these latter periods. But the ideas are there, you know, almost from the beginning, but they start becoming uh, schools. So Late's question, does the order indicate that there is a prioritization of action over belief? I would suggest that these schools started rising when the need was rising at the time. So what goes hand in hand with the rise of the theological schools? A lot of it, I would suggest, is related to other schools of of belief that are saying we're Muslim, but people are recognizing, okay, there's some strange things about their beliefs. Or we don't believe that Allah knows all. So if you go into Sahih Muslim, go right all the way near the beginning of Sahih Muslim after. He has like one big section on just authentication of Hadith. <coughs> and then the actual collection he has, he has Kitab al-Iman, the book of faith. And and so he'll have uh, one set of, or Nabawi's commentary will have one set of essays on, you know, does Iman just go up and down, right? That's a theological question. And then from there, the question becomes, uh, uh, you know, there are people at the time of the later Sahaba, so meaning like 50 years after the Prophet has died, peace be upon him, people are arguing that, okay, uh, there's no such thing as adar, where Allah ta'ala does not have divine decree. And there's even a famous narration that appears like six times in various languages like in Sahih Muslim, where these people are walking up to Abdullah ibn Umar and they're being really polite and they're suggesting to him, okay, Allah ta'ala doesn't, doesn't have adar, right? And so that was an idea at the time early on, but then this starts seeping in as a common idea. And so these schools of theology are forming with people trying to address these questions and try to give these answers. So an an equivalent issue today would be what I think we've discussed before. How do you reconcile, if you can reconcile, science with religion? Or how do you reconcile, if you can reconcile, you know, scripture with a theory of evolution? Those would be questions today. Why is it important? 500 years from now, people are going to look at this time and think, why are they asking that question? But today, it is a, such a question that it affects people's faith. So, so if I come along and say there's no evolution, there's going to be a bunch of people who are no longer going to believe in the team. If I come along and say there is evolution, there's going to be a different group of people who are going to react differently. And so those would be, those would be the equivalent questions of, of today. And then if we jump forward about 400 years, then we see the rise of Sufi schools, Sufi networks. And the reason I'm drawing these brackets is I want you to think of these building as building on what came before. So here we have the schools of, of theology. Uh, I don't know if you need me to write like the the major compilations of, 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 um, of, of hadith here. We're familiar with most of them. But the idea being that different scholars develop their own methods of interpreting what is sound, what is not sound. Methods of critiquing what is sound, what is not sound. <clears throat> now what's interesting about the formation of the Sufi networks is that Early on, it was a combination of devotion to Allah. And this I think I mentioned before, plus a focus on social action. And again, to give you, sorry, I'm gonna, without flipping around too much, to give you an idea of rough dates, this is all 700s to 900s. And this is the 800s to 900s. This is not getting 900s to 1300s. And so the Sufi networks. Now, the ideas that would be categorized today as Sufi ideas, again, were present much earlier because the language becomes Sufi before it was ihsan and Irfan. So. And so that's when these schools start growing. And then <laughs> when we move to the modern period, which is essentially for our purposes here, we're gonna say 800s to 1800s to the 1900s. A point that I made was that in the period of colonization, what seems to have happened is that the Sufi networks started focusing less on social action. And what is social action? Social action would either be in our language in the form of what we might call soup kitchens that each of the sufi networks in the indian subcontinent was known okay this is the particular meal that they feed to the poor these people feed nihari these people feed such and such so far and so on Good. Uh, or in our language they were unions guilds and they would organize people that way but then, when that social action aspect started decreasing <laughs> and the devotion aspect started increasing, then we saw the rise of the khilafa movement. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't know if you want me to list out a bunch of the Sufi networks, um, like we have the Naqshbandi, the big ones are the Naqshbandi, um, the uh, Shadili, the Dijani, and in some content we have the Chishti. And there's as many as 12 to 15. In yeah. the Khalafah movement, <coughs> we have, and I gave a little bit of uh, this uh, a day or two ago, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. If you look at the early language of Hassan al-Banna and the formation of the Muslim Brotherhood, it's very, very Sufiistic language because he's coming from a Sufi tariqah. Uh, in the subcontinent, we have Jamaat-e-Islami. These are all the big, big ones. In, um, in Indonesia, we have the Muhammadiyah, And then other groups. The biggest ones are Muslim Brotherhood and and Jamaat-e-Islami in terms of influence. And then there are also, in this period, there are other movements that are forming. But then the question is, where are we now? In the 1900s to 2000s. Unfortunately, we also have the rise of freedom fighters. That's not the unfortunate part. They're often categorized as the terrorist groups. So this is where have Al-Qaeda. ISIS would also be here. You know. But other groups that are focused, uh, they might be anti-occupation. And they're deriving some language from Islamic sources. So. Okay. So all of this is, and it's sort of, I think, uh, I'll take a look at the Navira's question, uh, Dr. Navira's question in a second. Uh, comes down to what is the most common, uh, a very common question that I'll get is, okay, do I need to have a hub? Okay. And the short answer for all of these is that as you get deeper into your thought and practice, you're going to probably find yourself getting involved into these in various capacities, depending upon what you're seeking. So if you ask people in the mudhubs, do I need a mudhub? More often than not, they'll say yes. Uh, If we're looking at someone who's a brand new convert, I will often steer them away from the mudhubs at the beginning. Even for example, the Salafi movement, which, which rose not unlike the way the Protestants rose, in the, in the 1500s to give you an idea of the Salafi movement has parallels that's you know uh, similar to the protestants and christianity in the way i'm explaining <clears throat> And that the Protestant movement is saying that, okay, the clergy is corrupt, and they're out of date, and they've lost their integrity. I can have a relationship with God without the clergy. Okay. And I can go straight to the text and and, and study the text for myself. Yeah. Okay. Now, one of the reasons they're saying this in the 1500s and not the reason, not 500 years before that is, is because now we have Gutenberg who's publishing the Bible and everybody can get the Bible somewhat cheaply. It becomes affordable. And so, yeah, why do I need why do I need a priest to tell me what this means? I can understand what this means. And so this is the essence of how the Salafi movement is forming. But in the late 20th century, In the sense, the argument is that, okay, all these four schools, why do I need to follow them? They're all human beings. I have a brain. Here is the Quran. Here is the Hadith. I can understand what they're saying. And that is how the Salafi movement formed. And then the consequence of the Protestants is that they started developing their own scholars. And the Salafi movement, which was anti-scholarship, also developed their own scholars. Now, if we're going to be technical, Sunni Islam is those four schools, and so an early critique of the Salafis was that they were Sunni. They were not Sunnis, but they were pretending to be Sunnis. And so, to prevent or minimize fitna from happening, the Salafis got categorized as a modified version of the Hanbalis in terms of their approach. When did the Salafis come about? This would be, they start really starting to seem to surf, uh, the modern Salafis as we speak of them, they start surfacing, give or take the 1950s, 1960s, and then much more so in the 1980s, and then even much more so as the internet uh, 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 became established. Okay, so the question is, if I need, if I want salvation, do I have to join any of these? Uh, the short answer is no, but what do these provide? These provide paths that other people have already deliberated over. And so the first big need seemed to be to figure out questions of action. So someone asked earlier, okay, is this giving us a sense of priority? Partially in the sense of what was the big first big need of the time. I mean, here at governance. I'm not getting into because we talked about it in terms of uh, you can make this overlap with that whole chart about the Islamic empires. Well, one of the first big questions was was uh, the school of Fiqh. What is it basically doing? These schools are saying each of them has a method of interpretation of the text, yeah. and and then through that <laughs> we are seeking to have consistent answers. So a Hanafi set of answers means what? They're taking the texts, the Quran, the Prophet, peace upon him, the Sahaba, and we're gonna interpret it using these methods. The Hanbali is saying we're gonna use these methods, so forth and so on. And so the goal is consistency. Now, if you're in a place like the United States, where if you go to your local mosque, um, especially in a city, a big city, you're gonna have people from all over the world. Okay? Even if, you're, if your mosque is somewhat homogeneous, And so usually the default is you just go with whatever the mosque administration does, whether the scholars or not the U.S. administration. When does this become an issue? All right, does Ramadan start today or does Ramadan start tomorrow? Is it tonight or is it tomorrow, right? You usually go with what your particular uh, center is following. And then, however, if you're studying and you're getting into Islamic law, then you're probably gonna have the, the school of law that your teacher has. I mean, even though I'm Desi, I'd be Hanafi. Why am I Hanafi in terms of schools of law? Because the law that I'm being taught was Hanafi law by scholars of Hanafi law. Whereas theology is coming from from others and so forth and so on. And so, so to Ahan's question, can you explain methods of interpretation really quick? Okay, really, really quick. The Maliki school argument is that, okay, we are about 100 years after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him. A bit more than that if there's one place in the world where people are probably practicing Islam true to what the Prophet did, peace be upon him, it's where I live, which is Medina. Good. And and so we're going to default to looking at their practices. And we're going to line up hadith according to their practices. So what is considered to be one of, if not the first collections of hadith is Malik's book. And he is comparing and contrasting all the hadith were what we find the people of Medina doing. And that becomes our foundation. Good. Okay. Now, the Hanafi school, Imam Abu Hanifa is living far away in Kufa. And in Kufa, where are they? They're in the place where uh, where Ali, Imam Ali, radiAllahu an, is, is lived his, his final days. And then on top of that, it's a majority non-Muslim society. And this is often called the school of Abdullah ibn Masud. He was one of the companions, and that's basically where he settled. And looking at what he was taught by the Prophet, peace be upon him, and how do we articulate that into, into a whole tradition. And the Hanafis especially focused on figuring out theoretical questions. The Malikis early on didn't address theoretical questions. Meaning if it didn't happen, we're not going to worry about it. If it happened, okay, let's try to find an answer. The Hanafis are like, let's figure out an answer to everything. The Shafiq has come along. You know, uh, Imam Shafi is a student of Imam Malik, and he tries to articulate in advance a theory of Islamic law. So he says you have the text and you have interpretation. The text, you have the Quran and Sunnah. Interpretation. The big thing is what is the the overwhelming majority view on things, and then what is analogies. And so he's deriving a school of Islamic law using a theory in advance, and then. About seven hundred years later, the whole Shafi school gets rewritten by Imam Nawawi. Okay. And then, what else do we have? The Hanbali school is basically the simplest. It's saying, "All right, we got all the hadith. If it's a somewhat authentic hadith, then you follow it. And if there's five different answers in the hadith, you follow any of those five. If it's outside of it, can't help you." Okay. And so, so those are different methods of of interpretation of text, focus on action. So in terms of the majority of, of schools of theology, the majority school of the theologies is the Asharis. The Maturidis tend to line up with the Hanafis, and that's it seems to be more of a historical result than, than anything else. And then the Shafi'is and the Malikis tend to line up with the Asharis. And then the Afari, like we said, was a backlash, pushing back against them, saying, all right, you guys are overthinking everything. We don't care about free will predestination. We don't care how how you know is a Lutella part of time or not. Okay, we have responsibilities in action. Okay, very very simplistic simpl- simplistic school, which works for a lot of people. The Mutasallah were essentially Greek the- thinkers. They were using the ideas of Greek thought and then coming up with with a worldview that way. And so we talk about the hadith collections. <laughs> Uh, how can you have conflicting schools of theology? Because they are schools of interpretation. Exactly the same way you can have conflicting schools of law. Meaning, so at uh, one point that that uh, uh, I'm taking is assumed here. All these schools, they're answering the minor issues. Okay, In terms of theology and such, they're answering the minor issues. And splitting hairs. Okay. They're not the bigger issues they all agree upon. And so, so how can you, uh, so, so here, this is more a method of a process of interpret of of particular scholars. Uh, Even if you look at the Naqshbandis and the Shadalis and the Tijanis, there's other schools like the Madhematia and and such. uh, They all agree on the big things, but they have particular methods in each of the schools that they give priority to. Good. So, Basir's question, uh, just to repeat, uh, very often the maturidis, uh line up with the Hanafis and the Asharis line up with the Maliki and the Shafi'is. And the Athari sort of lines up with the Hanbali. And the Hanbali school is basically saying, okay, forget all the theory and everything. Here's the Hadith. Okay. And that's what we're going to try to follow. And then... The afadi tends to fit with that. Okay, all the uh, the stuff that's in the unseen, we're not going to think about. Okay, so let's look at some more of these questions. Uh, what would you say is the best hub for American Islam? Uh, ask a Hanafi, they'll tell you the Hanafis. Ask the Monarchies, they'll tell you the Monarchies, uh, and so forth and so on. And and so the answer to that is basically follow what the people of your local community. Uh, each of these has different values. So I have a student of mine who, in, in terms of Islamic law, is trained in the Maliki school, and he says the Hanbali school is actually the best for, for America because that has the most wide-ranging amount of flexibility. Uh, who are the Jaffris and what was their method? So they were the big school of, of, of Shias. <clears throat> the Shias, the big schools, are basically the Jafari and the Zaidi, but it's overwhelming majority Jafari. And then you have offshoots, the Zaydis basically. So you have the Imams in Zaydi tradition, in, in, in Shia tradition. But the Prophet, peace be upon him, how do we get to know him? Through these specific descendants, the Imams. And the Zaydis break off at Imam number five, and another group, uh, the Ismailis, break off at Imam number seven. But the majority are what we call Twelvers, it's not Ashari, and they tend to be Jafari in terms of their, their, their understanding. And then someone asked the question, is there like a Salafi equivalent of, of Shias? So you have the Akhbaris and the Usulis, the Akhbari movement in Shia tradition, although they would never admit it, just like just like Salafis say, no, we're just Muslim, we're not Salafis. Um, uh, the Akhbaris are sort of-ish, the modern Akhbaris are sort of like um, the, uh, the, the the Salafi version of Shias. Wouldn't it be incorrect to associate a school of with a school of theology? So think about it this way, <clears throat> to put it to modern language. So <clears throat> do I need a school of theology? If I am choosing to take a stance on something like evolution, you're going to automatically find that you're gonna be in this camp okay, or that camp. If I say evolution happened, I'm gonna be in one camp. If I say no, it's Adam peace be upon him, no evolution. I'm gonna be in a different camp. That becomes, when we start arguing why, now they become schools of theology. Now, do I have to have a stance on evolution? I can say, no, I don't care. It has nothing to do with my life. That becomes a third school. You See, that's how these schools form. When people feel compelled to take stances. So somebody has to try to figure out answers to these questions for everybody else. Meaning I'm often asked questions about evolution and such, you know, or what about the big bang? What if string theory takes over instead of the big bang? Or what if you have infinite regressions and so there's no more big bang, right? And so some people have to try to figure out answers because other people's faith or the shakiness of their faith might be resolved with some sort of answer. Mozzofri's School in the Making, if you want to get all of your, you know, your, your, your pathway to misery, They come on over to Orlando Park. Okay, we uh, uh-huh. paraphrasing. So the hadith with 73 sects, or the one goes to Jannah, uh, that's not uh, necessarily relevant to this. And uh, people often quote this hadith, but the important part of the hadith is not the 73 sects. The important part of the hadith is the last part. I mean, obviously the whole thing is important. Which one is, is the one that's saved, the one that follows my way and the way of my, my companions? And if you go into the foundations of all of these that I just laid out, all of them trace themselves back to the Prophet peace be upon him and the companions. Okay, uh, let's see uh, other questions. Seventy-three is seventy-three literal. I love his best. Uh, uh, I was also taught that there's an inverse, and this will totally confuse all of you. So. Jews have 72 schools, the Christians have 73 schools, the Muslims have 74 schools or something like that, I think 70, 71, 72, all are going to hell except for one. There's also an inverse, all are going to paradise except for one. I posted three questions, no response. Um, well, okay, I'll have find your questions. The question, that was the, the thing was sent to me privately. Sorry, I was multitasking by teaching. Okay, let me see what else. Explain the, okay, did that, no progression on this path since the last 300 years, what would be the impact of the, this gap and current issues at hand? Uh, I mean, I don't think it's fair to say that there's no progression on this in the last 300 years. Uh, the rise of the Khilafah movement is definitely saying that a okay, few people have come forward to try to, to answer some of the issues of the day. Uh, but uh, we still have, for example, Iqbal's book, Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam, and there's one official response to it which is Islam and Modernity by Fasul Rahman. But by and large, there's not much of of a response. And the answer to that would be simply, where are we investing all of our money? And if we look at the Chicagoland area, far more money goes into building the masjids and to providing relief work for people overseas, but very little money is focused on building human beings here. And so what else would we expect? Uh, why is the definition for whether you are in Sunni Islam or whether or not you follow one of the Muslims? Wouldn't it be more about the Aqidah that one follows? So uh, Sunni Islam, the argument is that Aqidah is the first step. But then when we're saying, what are the actions I need to do? These are the schools that are saying, okay, here's the particulars. Again, there, it's if you really get into the details of these schools, they're doing the level of hair splitting. All of them agree that there's five daily prayers, all of them agree about Ramadan, all of them agree about everything else. But for example, we have narrations where, where asar uh, begins when your shadow is equal to your length. We also have narrations of the prophet when your shadow equals twice your length, which one do you follow? Okay. And so these schools are saying basically, all right, here's how we juggle the different varying hadith to figure out those answers. Uh, let's see, in Islam, uh, Islam and academia tends to, uh, to think that a bit like Salafis, though, scholars are subjective, go straight to the text. Yeah, this is, this is a very, very fair criticism. So we have Islam and academia, I mean, to, to really make things even more fun and complicated. Uh, another point to think about is what makes an Islam? So the question is already very, very strange. And, and so the primary source is going to be your local government plus the education institutions, plus the population. So what are we saying here in the United States? All of the, all of the groups that self-identify as religions have to have the same mold. Good. And what is the same mold? Because it's a secular state and the government does not, uh, does not endorse a religion. It means the dominant religion of America is agnosticism. right? The Constitution is an agnostic text, meaning it is not endorsing a religion. And then it's like imagine each religion is a different bird. So imagine one bird is an eagle, another bird is a hawk, another bird is a chicken, another bird is a peacock, so forth and so on. And, and then the constitution is forcing every single bird to fit into the same shape. And so when you grow up in America, you know, except for little differences in terminology, from a sociological perspective, every single religion looks the same protestant islam protestant christianity looks more or less interchangeable from islam meaning the beliefs are different but the way they do things you have your holidays i have my holidays you have your preacher i have my preacher you have your house of worship i have mine you have your scripture i have mine right and so so the government is going to be placing the limits good and the educational institution is going to be articulating okay how do you do things and so what are the big sources of the articulation of Islam throughout the Muslim world. Okay, so we have Al-Azhar. In Morocco, we have Medina University. We have the Indian schools, but the biggest one is Deoband, And the one that is gaining the most influence little by little is the Western Academy. and yeah whatsapp institute yeah youtube institute is is also one of them okay so what we're saying and and if we want you know uh i should put it here uh we have damascus but we don't know what the future of that is as well as independent teachers okay this is where you go the teacher lives in a tent and you go sit with the teacher or you meet with the teacher uh, independently. And so each institution is forming and teaching its own version of Islam. Good. So Azharah has is approached the core for at least all of the above, except for the Western Academy. The core curriculum is all the same, but their particulars will then vary. But why is the Western Academy so influential and increasingly influential? Because all of us go to the Western Academy, and then you'll have Muslims that will go take courses in Islam at their universities, may or may not be taught by Muslims, and may or may not be taught by religious Muslims, and so what is often one of the big questions about Hadith? Okay, do I, is it authentic or not? Okay, that's coming from the, that question coming from the Western Academy, which argued very aggressively until about the 1990s that hadith are all fake. Yeah. And then what's becoming the next push? The next push is that the Quran has been changed. Yeah. We've already addressed this many, many classes ago in terms of the ahruf, but that's how it's being framed. And I don't know if, if uh, uh, some of the other uh, Islam studies professors are online, but even Dr. Dhabir, you can even uh, address this so um, And so, so the point is that you know all the all the students, the young Muslims that are getting degrees in medicine and whatever else, they'll be taking their Islamic studies courses. Either they can take courses by a joker, right, or you know someone else, and and so the point being that that is informing their approach to Islam, and that they become the elite in the Muslim community. Okay, and then the population is just okay. How do people do it in your in your community? And so it's sort of like a push-pull between all three of these things. And, and so, so yeah, ulfa uh, uh, related to your point, uh, the Western Academy sort of is Protestant-ish. And to support that point, Luther, Martin Luther is Dr. Martin Luther, PhD. And he's working through that version of the lens of the Western Academy to rewrite Christianity and so the offshoot in islam right now is called progressive islam in the same way reformed judaism started by a mixture of business people as well as academic scholars of judaism rewriting judaism Okay, let's see. Abdullah, The Souls of of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois, talks about how the Black Americans can be distracted by economic and political interests from developing their spirituality and intellect to their true potential. Um, uh, Sounds like a comment. I don't know if there's a question there, but yeah, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is one of the giant thinkers. Uh, Other questions about anything, anything at all? wonder if there's a similar problem. Oh wait, uh, yeah, yeah, Dr. Malahad, you're gonna have to, uh, there's a whole lot of comments up there for me to go up there. I wonder if there's a similar problem for Muslims today. I mean, there's definitely, if we if we look in the same text, W.E.B. Du Bois right at the beginning starts talking about the double consciousness that, that black Americans have. And I think anybody who's part of a minority group has this double consciousness. And the idea being that I have my thoughts, but at the same time, I'm also constantly thinking about, are other people thinking of me? And so so that, I think, is very common in post-9-11 Muslims as well. You know, part of the reason no one wants to talk about Khilafah anymore is the fear that someone's going to start calling the police or something. And until these Congress people came along, no one even wants to talk about Muslims in politics except, you know, very, very small, small doses. But that's as much part of Dean as everything else. You should feel free to talk about whatever you'd like. What happens if you don't follow a mudhub in your case? You get in big trouble. No, no, no. So, so I mean, the answer to that is Allah knows best. But the point I'm making is that as you go through, uh, uh, as you get more scrupulous and refined in your Islamic practice, you will find yourself needing to follow a mudhub um, as sort of uh, an easy path to finding a lot of answers. Are you saying that sending Islam through the Western Academy is essentially pro- problematic? No, I'm saying that a person should, needs to know what they're getting into. And so a point I make in a couple of people here have taken my classes, like in the first day of class, I will say, if in these words or in just English language words, in this class, you're taking the academic study of Islam. So this is me as a Muslim and Muslim chaplain at a Catholic university. I'm saying, you're taking the academic study of Islam. You are not learning Dean here. And so the academic study of Islam is using the same books as the study of Dean is <clears throat> but there's no assumption that I have to be a Muslim to teach it and there's no assumption that you have to be a Muslim to learn it. And so, so how does the Western Academy work? So we have the Mother sub versus the Western Academy. The Mother Mothersa is answering the question, what does Allah want from it and how do I fulfill it? The Western Academy is answering the question, how does the world work? And then trying to answer from there. So if you're taking Islam in the Western Academy, you're learning how does this thing we call Islam work? So you use tools like sociology, and anthropology, and history, and interpretation of texts to try to figure out how does this thing work. And I'm actually saying that that's something very important and beneficial. But if I'm going in, I need to be clear. I'm not learning Dean. I'm learning the academic critique. What happens when people cherry pick rulings from all school, all four schools of thought? That is called talfiq. Some of that in a multicultural society is unavoidable, and so you just do it. Uh, but if you're if you're doing the buffet approach to find out which way is the easiest way, that's okay to start with. But then again, as you get more serious in your Islam, more serious in the details, you're gonna find yourself having to flock to, to uh, either one of those schools or invent your own. But again, inventing your own is gonna be a big thing. What was the impetus behind the rise of the Sufi guilds? What were they addressing? The short answer seems to be that they were trying to practice their Islam without it being controlled by the state. That seems to be the short uh, version of the answer. So, using different terminology like zawiya and again, Sufi and such. Where do the Khawarij fit, Manhaj wise? Good question. Okay, so the Khawarij, uh, I uh, think of them uh, in sectarian language. So, so, what are the big sectarian schools? Like I always like to tell the students hey, guess what we're talking about in class today? Say it out loud. So, of course, the big ones are the Sunnis, and then you have the Shia. What's the third one? Anybody know? And then the, this would be everybody else that self-identifies as Muslim. Muslim but they don't fit in any of the top. So the full name of Sunni is what? Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, the people of the Sunnah and the Jama'ah. And what is the focus here? We have the Prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him. I think we did this, didn't we? I feel like we've done this way uh, many, many classes Mm -hmm. ago. Yeah, so very, very briefly, you have the plus the Sahaba plus the scholars, legacy of scholars, plus the ummah, prophet of the Qur'an, plus the imams, plus the scholars, especially of Shia tradition, plus the ummah with focus on the Shia ummah. Prophet of the Qur'an, literalists. So the Ibadi are the descendants of the of the um, of the with uh, far less, if any, of the violence that the khawarij were known for. Heterobox, heterodox heterodox would include the Nation of Islam groups like them. Wholeheartedly, a member of the Nation of Islam identifies themselves as Muslim. Wholeheartedly, they look at themselves as brothers and sisters in Islam, of Sunnis and stuff. But They see uh, Elijah Muhammad, depending on whom you ask, as a messenger, no day of judgment, God came in the form of Master Fard. The Ahmadi would often be split into two groups. And so Ahmadi's will identify themselves as Ahmadi. One is the Lahore Ahmadi's are basically Sunnis that sort of keep themselves distinct from Sunnis. And then those whom Sunnis call Qadianis, but self-identify as Ahmadi's, give this high status to Ulam, Mirza Ahmad and such. Ismailis and Bohras, they're, yeah, there's subsets of subsets of, of, uh, of, of, Shias and such. Any other questions? Hey, Dr. Malahat, if you could, if you could repaste some of your questions, because uh, I'm having trouble finding them. Can we mic? Okay, if I can figure out how you can mic, then the answer is definitely yes. Or if someone can tell me how to allow you to mic. I'm afraid I'm gonna unmute everyone. Let's see what happens. Okay. Anybody wanna talk? Okay, yeah, I figured out, okay. I've just muted. Um, and Okay, now you're all muted, but you can unmute yourself. So go for it, late. Did we lose length? I thought you were going to ask. Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry. I just unmuted. Uh, so quick question. So all, all I mean, all of this comes from we're, we're talking specifically about the secondary instructions that come in co- like in the command to slaughter the cow, right? Like going all the way back. Uh, can you ask your whole question? Um, I, I was just wondering, I mean, so these secondary instructions that you said were built in. So like we take from like the uh, the beauty of the cow, like the the need like the the need to recognize beauty, um, but like aren't these coming from negative questions, like the neg- like perhaps negative questioning of the of like uh, Israel? So uh, regardless what the questions are, the answers are coming from Musa salam, right? And then the Quran is putting them in a particular order. But that's not uh, the foundation here. I'm giving you some that's just looking at some philosophical foundations of Sharia. And there's more passages through which we'd find some philosophical foundations. But let's say we skip all of that. We'd still be deriving all the stuff that I wrote on the whiteboard the same way. In the sense of, all right, we have the Quran and and the Prophet peace be upon him. The Prophet is saying X -X Y Z, and we have these narrations of how he did it. But then what about this question that, that just came up? How do we answer that? And so that's what those schools are about. So think of it more as a practical progression as opposed to a theoretical progression, except for the Shafi'is, where the Shafi'i approach is to start with theory and then then develop practice. Does that help a bit? Okay, not, okay. So let's see, Abdullah Ansari, what do we got here? Big question. And you find the that wait is there a question before that I'm starting with and yeah, I don't see a question before that uh, okay so you find that orientalists often misunderstand misinterpret the scripture because they don't have a solid background in many of the Islamic sciences so they try and take a scholarly approach start teaching and so on but they are doing a disservice to our tradition such as when they thought that the burning of the Quran the Sahaba was an act of blasphemy. Um, there's a lot of points in there that, that I would wrestle with a bit. Uh, I'm cautious about, about the term orientalists. Um, um, uh, if we're using that to speak of academic professors of Islam. Um, there is an American orientalist society. And there's also, uh, when Edward Said is speaking of orientalists, he's speaking of people who are connected with power, who are connected with the imperial project. Uh, and so, so, what was Edward Said's argument? He said that the federal government funded these big departments in universities to help the process of imperialism. And there, you know, all you, the view was, in the, in the short sense, was you need to learn the language, you know, uh, and you need to learn the history, and then you, you know what you need to know to conquer. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I don't know if he's passed away, but like one of the big Orientalists would be this guy, Dr. Bernard Lewis. You know, and when we, the United States, was going into Iraq in 2003, he argued, oh, they're going to wait for us. They're going to welcome us with open arms. Like, seriously, dude, right? Anybody with half a brain could know that that was wrong. And so they have their own interpretation, but they're going from the perspective that Muslims are an inferior civilization. Uh, Many of the academic professors of Islam, you know, uh, include some of those people, but are people who just love the subject matter. But... They either do not have the training, the traditional training, or they do not want the traditional training. And uh, they may or may not also be preaching. Yeah. I Meaning they'll be teaching in the classroom, uh, but it doesn't mean that they'll be preaching outside of the classroom. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you'll have that. Uh, you'll have you know people that will even focus on different things. And just think back to your Loyola days. Uh, uh throughout your loyal career, there might have been at least four different professors teaching intro to Islam. One was me, uh, one was Marcia Hermanson, one was Azan and Nizamuddin. And I'm forgetting some of the other people who had been there in your era. And if you look at all of our syllabi, they're all completely different from each other. Right. You know, and but they're all using very, very different approaches to define this thing that we call uh Islam. You know. Um, but yeah, I mean, some some will then then uh, you know make some big blunders, you know, on on issues bigger than even the issue of the of the burning of the Quran or something like that, you know. Uh, and and so yeah, I mean, uh, the question of, of what are what is someone's background and training, even you know, uh, uh, will will always be a question, you know? So. But the point is that so essentially, I'm sort of agreeing with your overall point, but in terms of different aspects of it, I'm just tweaking a little bit. So I have a question Omar, that. Uh, you know, from the last three hundred plus years, there is, yeah. there is a gap, right? So, you mentioned about the Western scholar in one of your whiteboard that they are contributing towards the Fiqh and the uh, the madhav. but you know, half of them are actually spending the time to reviving what has been done already for the fourth school of thought. So so how is this, what is the impact for this gap we are having between no progression has been made from the last centuries and, and today's challenges? Well, I mean, uh, I answered part of this at least before, uh, a moment ago, where I said, I disagree that no progression has taken place, right? The whole rise of the Khilafah movement, whether we agree with it or not, uh, is arguing that, okay, something needs to be revived. Right, and the Muslim Brotherhood was connected directly with Al-Azhar, um, and jamaat islami also formed its own scholars. Mahamadiya formed its own scholars and such. But uh, the bigger issue is that uh, in our community, knowledge is not a very high priority. Uh, and you know that you know what's the practice? It's the the kids that don't get into med school, engineering, business, law, etc., that then go to Madrasa, which means our dumbest kids go to Madrasa. Of course, I say that in class, and the students go, "What about you, Professor Mosaffre?" I go, "Yeah, me too." And and so the point being that uh, I don't think we place any sort of, of premium on on the development of scholarship, and uh, as a community, which means every person in this room is responsible for that. Uh, we don't put uh, very much of a premium on building human beings. You know, uh, that's a community problem, and it is a community curse as a result. And so. Uh, uh, uh so so essentially that would be that would be the, the, the short answer. And then the example I used is that Iqbal, you know, he he produces his book, Reconstruction of Religious Thought. There's one official response to it, um, Islam and Modernity by, by Fazlur Rahman. Uh, where does a Quran class like this fit into the scheme of all these kinds of schools? It's basically to lead you astray. now I mean, so so the goal of this of a class like this is to go back and look at bits of each of these things in a way to get an understanding of of you know what are the foundations for us to process Islam in our time and place you know uh, I don't think I think it would be too grandiose for me to, to connect it with any of those things, except to say that I'm taking little bits from all of those things, all of these different uh, schools uh, in terms of what's good for a person to develop their own, you know, inshallah, somewhat solid foundation. Uh, the am sorry, saying especially through overseas. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to 36, I may have missed this. What does it mean by Satan expelling them from both they were in? Does this refer to a notion separate from God's banishment? So this is commonly understood uh, in other passages that they were exposed to their own selves. And so they started feeling shame. And, and then they started feeling remorse. So they're from, like in one translation, I think it's a Pictal's translation, that they were that he removed them from the happy state that they were in. This innocent state and now they've been exposed to something that was there but they didn't notice any other questions I took a quick look at the Google form I don't see an option to save and continue later oh no okay I thought I put it in there and uh, so I'm for somebody who used to work in, in IT long ago I'm remarkably computer illiterate so let me try to, to do that for your, your exam. And your exam for, for Sutal Bakra will be posting pretty soon, and shall I still have quite a bit more to, to add to it. Uh, but yeah, thank for that. I thought I had that there. Like there's there's a click. What I thought was, you know, where people can't come back and work on this later, but let me let me see if I set that incorrectly. Any other questions about anything at all? So the link for all of the material is, once again, tinyurlcom Pandemic on Class. The goal for tomorrow, inshallah, is our last session. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to do a medium to high speed review of all uh, 47 ayahs. 48? 48, 48, 46, 46 ayahs, uh, but um, giving us an inverse um, uh, view that's actually not gonna take long, looking at all those different passages. And then uh, then we'll open the floor to, to any other questions. And we may, if people want, have an additional day where it's just Q&A about anything. <laughs> I know, so, uh, no you don't want an additional day for Q&A uh, I mean if you want we can we can throw in more conversations about things you know But I mean we have class tomorrow you y- y- all don't have to you know, you know be so disappointed or excited any other questions alright so let's stop right here Subhanakullah bihamdika anashadu ilaha anta نستغفرك ونتب إليك سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك إليك سبحانك اللهم نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك may Allah Taala reward you all wa and wa alhamdulillahirabbil